All right, uh, let's go ahead and get started. All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the very first uh, um, Scilab security seminar of the semester. Um, so today uh, we're um, excited to have our very own graduate student, Shi uh, Ching Ma, uh, present to us about his work uh, with uh, um, his uh, advisors, Dong Yan and uh, Zhang Yu. Um, so I was just at uh, USENIC Security um, last week, uh, and uh, so the slide title slide doesn't say it, uh, but this paper actually was uh, the recipient of one of the Distinguished Papers Awards at USENIC Security. Um, so I'm excited to have, uh, you know, here, uh, you know, some of the very best work from uh, USENIC Security. Um, so thank you, and uh, I'll let Xi uh, Ching uh, tell us all about it. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Blocky, for the introduction. So, hello everyone. I'm Shi uh, Qing Ma. I'm uh, here studying for studying in the computer science department. Uh, this work is called MPI, Multiple Perspective Attack Investigation with Semantic Aware Execution Partitioning. This work is done is a joint work with uh, Professor Zhuan Zhai from Nanjing University, uh, my colleague Fei Wang and uh, Professor Qiu Hang Li from University of Georgia, and my advisors Xiang Yuzhang and Dong Yanzu. So before we start, uh, I would like to first uh, go through some backgrounds. Uh, first, uh, the work is in the context of attack investigation. So traditionally, attack investigation has two components. The first one is a provenance system. So what is provenance? Basically, it's a history. So provenance tracking system basically will log all the activities on your system, for like Windows or Linux or, any, uh, or even Android platform. They all have provenance systems logging the processes and objects uh, like files and sockets uh, activities. And uh, there are many ways to have to actually, there are many existing provenance systems. Uh, for us, we use the Linux audio system is actually built in in the Linux uh, mainstream kernel. And uh, some other researchers actually use others like uh, Linux security module uh, to monitor all the inodes and uh, log all the activities. A very typical log will look like this. You know, for each event, you will have a process and uh, operations on some system objects or subjects, like uh, a PID. It uh, represents one process. The process is uh, receiving packets from some sockets. And the uh, process can write or read to files. Uh, we do this by monitoring all the system calls, uh, the Linux audit framework. And we can log all the important activities for individual system objects, like file sockets and uh, processes. The second component is called the dependence analysis. So basically, it will analyze all the events happen in your system and try to build a causal graph. A causal graph basically represents uh, all the dependence in the system, and uh, it will represent everything that happened in the system. For dependencies, there are many types. Uh, for example, process to process. Basically, process creates another process or terminates, send a queue to another process, or, or process to sockets or files, create, bind, open, or close, delete. 
and the causal graph will look like this. So basically, the edges represent the causal relationships, and the nodes here will represent the uh, system objects or, or objects or subjects. Like the, we use different shapes to represent you know, different uh, types, sockets, uh, is a diamond and uh, process like a triangle. And uh, here is an overview. So the left-hand side shows the two log entries, and the right-hand side will be the graph generated from the two log entries. So as uh, we can see, process 24 actually reads some information from socket and then write to a local file task command. There is an information flow from the socket to the process and then write to the socket. It's pretty clear. After these two steps, when you get the causal graph, it's pretty clear what, have, what has happened in the system. And this will help the investigators to understand the system activities. And this is a traditional way of doing this. This one actually shows a real-world example. It's a, I think, I think it's, a, it's just five minutes using a few programs. Uh, as you can see, the graph is uh, pretty big. It contains hundreds of nodes and uh, thousands of edges. Uh, this is because uh, this is real life, you know. Because, uh, there are many, many programs running on your system at the same time, and they all have interactions with each other. The causal graph actually uh, is good. It's, uh, you can easily understand it, but it's, uh, the size is too large. The, com the complexity makes the investigation pretty hard. And uh, the fundamental problem here is called the dependence explosion problem. And uh, I'm going to introduce uh, the problem and uh, some related works. So here I will show a, show a very simple example. It's a phishing attack by email. So this is one email. It's a typical spam email. But they usually have titles like urgent or important. And they fake the senders. Like this one is from Chase Online. Looks Everything looks good. And uh, actually, when you click uh, the link here, it will direct, uh, redirect you to a web page. Uh, the URL and the page looks uh, benign. It's uh, so malicious. But if you click the download activity, it actually will download you a malware. So this is a traditional attack, a traditional phishing attack. And uh, whenever you, I mean, I think, I think most of us will have the antivirus program running on your system. If you don't, please install one. So whenever this happens, this alert happens, this is how the investigation happens. So we, the investigation actually happens after you actually know the attack already happens, because eventually malware will expose itself. And this is a simplified graph generated from the previous example. Using the traditional approach uh, I just introduced uh, before, as you can see, there are many, many nodes here. Some of the nodes are pretty important. For example, send mail process and the email client process and the Firefox process. As you can see, those are the hot nodes. 
they connect uh, to you know other many thousands or hundreds or thousands of sockets and uh, other processes, which makes the graph uh, very complex and hard to understand. The differences here are some simple numbers. The previous uh, graph has uh, 51 processes, 15 files, more than 250 network addresses, more than 350 edges. Um, but the attack is pretty simple, typical. It's a very simple attack, but uh, the graph looks very complex. That's because of the dependency explosion problem. Because the graph actually have many, many bogus dependencies. Here are the, the red nodes in this graph actually shows the attack path. So one email basically is just from one sender. And the, the email, or the download events, uh, the click events from the email client, and the download events from the Firefox, they are pretty simple activities. The source of the download malware, it has only one source, right? It's just from one socket. In normal cases, you, you don't really download one file from like thousands of sockets. But the graph shows many nodes. Uh, why? This is a dependency exposure zone problem. It's because the traditional approach actually have one assumption. Every write depends on all the read events that happened before it. So for example, you are using Win to edit one file. You probably will open many, many files at the same time you will have many read events, but one write events. Actually, you are editing different files, but from the provenance perspective, you don't really know because you already lost uh, the context. You don't know the context of the application. You just know the context of the system. So the system tells you, okay, you read many files and you write to another file. The, the dependence analysis will have to assume all the read are the sources and the, the one write event is uh, writing to the destination. This assumption is clearly wrong, but uh, we can't really do anything uh, if we use uh, existing systems. Researchers actually have noticed this problem and proposed the solutions. It's called execution partitioning. Uh, you may still recall my title. I have the execution partitioning keyword here. The basic idea is actually those processes, the, the, those actually the hot nodes in the graph, they are actually <coughs> the nodes that cause the problems. Because those programs actually run a long time and all many, many read events and read events happen. And uh, the, because of the assumption, actually they will introduce many bogus dependencies. The basic idea of execution partitioning is to partition the process into multiple processes, as you can imagine. So here is an a example of the Firefox. Firefox, uh, if you visit many, many sockets, visit many, many websites, it, have, it will have many socket reads, and uh, it writes to one file that has one, only one file write. But if you use a traditional approach, the write events will depend on all the previous uh, socket reads, and the graph looks like this. Uh, the, I mean, only one socket is a true source, and all the others will be bogus. The idea of uh, execution partitioning will just partition Firefox to individual execution units. So each unit will just handle one socket, 
So when you do the analysis from backward analysis from the file, you only trace to one socket and it, the dependence won't propagate to previous sockets. That's the basic idea. Obviously, uh, individual units can depend on each other. So it's called uh, inter-unit dependence. The assumption in this model will be different. So in, in this model, everything, all the events happen within one unit will have the causal dependence. We will analyze the causal dependence. And uh, all the events that happen in different units, by, by default, we assume they don't have a dependence. So that's how we stop the propagation of the dependence. And uh, by leveraging the inter-unit dependence, actually this will complete a graph. We actually won't lose any you know, necessary dependence here. So existing execution partitioning technique, the state of art is called a BIP. It's a based, it's a based on the event handling loop. So as, a, as we all know, the current uh, operating systems, uh, most of the programs are actually event-driven programs. When you know external event happen, the program receives this event and uh, calls a corresponding event handler to process this event. This is uh, why they actually run for a long time because of the because of there are a very large number of uh, external events. So the idea of a beep is actually instrument uh, one event before at the entry of the event handling loop, and the one unit exit event at the end of the execution unit, and everything in between all the events uh, happen after the unit enter and before the unit exit will be considered as one unit. So the, all the events here will belong to one execution unit. And when we analyze the causal dependencies, we actually will just consider the events happen within this unit if there are no inter-unit dependencies. So basically, no, the, the name BIP is for binary-based uh, execution unit. It's actually published in NDSS 2013. It proposed a, a fine-grained subject. Basically, the processes will be individual units, and they can be connected with, by inter-unit dependencies. This is a BIP-generated graph by uh, applying on the previous uh, example, all the red nodes here are still the attack path. So all the blue nodes actually can be removed from this graph. And uh, this is a final result. As you can see, it's uh, pretty clear. It's just uh, one line. And uh, the attack path and all the sources, uh, what happened in the system is uh, now very clear. This is a comparison. So BIP actually can reduce a lot of uh, bogus dependence in the graph. But this is uh, not our, uh, this is not our MPI. We like the, yes. So my question is, do you get to this point because you're referencing someplace that is noted this malware, and therefore you kind of kind of reduce 
these different indicators in processes and files and network addresses, and you can stop it before it happens. How do you how do you collect this information to kind of neck it down as you have? Uh, you mean uh, I don't fully understand your question. So your process allows you to reduce what you have to watch, correct, and respond to. Yes. How do you get? How do you figure out? Do you have to actually get attacked by the malware to create this isolation, or are you reaching out to a someplace in the cloud and getting these indicators? Uh, the indicators you mean the because the event uh, handling loop is uh, okay. is in the program, right? Uh, okay. You actually can analyze. Uh, we perform. Uh, we use. Uh, we use pin tool to analyze the uh, binary, and uh, perform the instrumentation. Basically, the beep will need the binary writing to instrument the special system calls at the enter and the at the exit point of the event handling loop. Event handling loop is uh, uh, not very hard to identify because uh, it's, uh, I mean, more than 90 of the execution will be the event handling loop. So uh, you just need to monitor the hot paths during runtime, use a pin tool, and you can easily identify the execution. May, may I rephrase um, what I think you told me to make sure I have it correctly? So what you're saying is this, this loop that you've identified as an event mm -hmm. is identifiable so yes. that you can see it coming potentially before it happens. Yes. Thank you. And uh, well, actually, we have been using Beep for a long time. Uh, it works pretty well to solve the dependency ex explosion problem, but it has many limitations. First of all, it has many low-level events, like the GUI programs, all the mouse-click, keyboard strokes, actually external events. The event handling loop will actually have one event handler to process this event. It will generate many, many low-level events. Uh, those events cannot directly be mapped to the high-level events. We actually, we, we generate a graph actually to understand user intentions. Like, but uh, those low-level events actually is, uh, makes the graph even harder actually. For example, you are typing, you are typing a URL in Firefox. All the, every keystroke will be one execution unit. You have to change them to actually get to know you're actually typing here. Uh, the second one is for the inter-unit dependencies. Uh, inter-unit dependency is very hard. It's because uh, the inter-unit dependency has to, has to be a memory location. Inter-unit, you have to monitor all the memory accesses to, to actually identify all the read and write events and constantly find the constant relationship between two different units and identify such inter-unit dependence. So uh, for us, we have to actually have uh, hundreds to thousands uh, uh, test cases and use a pin tool to monitor all the memory accesses. The pin tool is uh, pretty slow. Uh, for people who haven't used the pin tool, I can say it's uh, about 10 times slower. So imagine you are using Firefox uh, like 10 times slower. It's uh, horrible. It's uh, not a very good experience. So the process. Uh, to identify the inter-unit dependence is actually very heavy.
and the BPX also generates many, many useless uh, units, like the mouse movements. Those are signals from the hardware are also you know, external inputs. This will make a lot of uh, unnecessary units. So what is really desired from the, inspect is from the investigator's uh, point of view? So first of all, we want to have a meaningful graph. Basically, when you see the graph, you know what happens. That's, that will be the best goal. Like for Firefox, if you see one node in the graph, okay, we know it's, a, it's one tab, or we know it's one page, it will be better. People will just directly understand, okay, this socket is uh, representing one page, or it's uh, one tab. And the second is uh, investigating actually requires uh, many different perspectives. Sometimes the uh, fine grain will be good, sometimes uh, Tab grind will, the coarse grind will be better. It's a, it totally depends on the different types of attacks. And also, actually, this, this is related with the causality model, where you want to track the causality or not. Also, for the causality, we also want to remove the training process for inter unit dependence. And then we want to make the log smaller. This auto, uh, removes all the unnecessary units. Uh, this will not only remove the, I mean, the entries from the log to reduce the space overhead, but also remove the unnecessary instrumentations. This will save some of the runtime overhead. MPI is uh, proposed based on the desired goals we want. It's actually inspired by process isolation mechanism in current operating systems. The basic idea is to let the investigator to define what you want to trace. What is the execution unit you, desire, you want in this program? So we call this a user-defined task. So we will partition the program based on the definition. By, if you define different tasks, actually we can partition the program in different ways. Those will provide the investigator's different perspectives to look at the attack. And the task is usually represented by different types of data structures, like Firefox one page tab window or individual DOM elements. The basic workflow is the programmers or the investigators first will have to annotate the program to tell us, okay, this is the perspective or the task I want. And then we will use our LLVM chain with some customized passes to actually compile the program, perform the analysis and the instrumentation, and then generate the executables. The executable will actively expose the unit information to the provenance system. So the provenance system will collect those information. And when you perform the analysis, you know the events within individual units. We also provide another miner, it's called a annotation miner, to help the programmers annotate the program. Because uh, I think it's not very easy to understand uh, like the source code of Firefox uh, or Wim. So the first of all, our technique annotation, 
annotation is actually very is very popular. I think uh, including Linux, uh, Firefox, Wim, basically all the uh, softwares currently are using the language extension. It's supported by GCC and Chrome, basically by the uh, most of the compilers. It's widely used. For Firefox, uh, we have uh, observed more than 900 different types of uh, annotations. And uh, for just the NS stack class, this annotation is to make sure the class is uh, in the stack, not in the heap. It has more than 400 annotated classes. And the, the, the last uh, bullet actually shows the format of the annotation. You can define your own annotation string and uh, perform analysis in the IR level. It will add uh, metadata in the IR. So first, uh, let's talk about the annotations we need for this uh, task. Uh, as we said before, our MPI is inspired by the operating system isolation mechanism. So first, uh, review the OS uh, process model. One process has its uh, own ID to identify the process. And uh, whenever the scheduler choose another, picks up another process to run, it will update the current value in Linux kernel. And this current uh, represents a current running process. Also, processes uh, can have uh, IP, can have uh, data exchange by using IPCs. For example, like uh, pipes. And the apps, it has a very similar model. The application programs, basically, it deals with individual tasks. Uh, those tasks are annotated. And uh, to identify individual tasks, we define one annotation, it's called the identifier. This is uh, it's just like the PID in the process model to identify the individual tasks. And uh, one indicator to indicate the switch between tasks. And uh, similarly, we have IPCs and we have the channel annotation representing the data exchange channel. Indicator is just like uh, indicator is just like the current variable in OS. It basically tells us, uh, okay, we are switching the context in the application. So this is a place we actually perform our instrumentation. When you tell the provenance system, oh, hey, the context is changing, and the identifier basically tells the uh, you know which task it belongs to. So this is also some of the information when you tell the provenance system. When you tell, hey. Uh, I'm currently working on this task, task A or task B or task C. And the third one is a channel, it's just like IPCs. I think uh, we are good here, right? It's uh, very easy to understand the annotations. The example is a uh, WIM. So in WIM, you can have uh, one, you can have one window, but opening different buffers. And the different buffer, you can edit in different files. So if we perform uh, each buffer is represented by the buff t data structure. And in the buff t, it has its own ID. Basically, you need something to identify the data structure instances. So the buff ID will be annotated as the identifier. And uh, there is one global variable in Win called curve buff. It's uh, of the type buff t. 
the pointer is actually pointing to the current buffer the user is editing. Basically, it tells uh, which, which buffer the user is working on. And uh, in Wim, we have a channel annotation. It's because of uh, Wim's uh, built-in clipboard. So in Wim, if you have the, if you use a copy and paste, you can actually use the clipboard built-in Wim to copy and paste contents uh, to exchange data between different uh, buffers. The buffer is uh, uh, in Wim is known as a register, Yank register. You we annotate the current uh, Yank uh, Yank register as a channel variable. So this is an example of uh, the context uh, switch. So do e command e means edit. When you type this command, you will switch a buffer. So the curve buff will be assigned a new value. We will instrument some code after this statement. So basically, it will first check if the buffer is really changing or not. If it changes, we actually expose the current buffer ID basically the new buffer ID to the provenance system. For different uh, provenance system, we actually use different uh, functions. The functions are different. Uh, for links audit, we use the queue system call with illegal parameters. Negative 100 is uh, a, I mean, all the PIDs will be larger than 100, will be larger than zero. So this uh, value is illegal. So whenever it calls to the kernel, it will directly actually returns, so to save some time. Uh, to help the annotation, we developed the annotation miner. As we said before, those tasks are usually represented by some ap application data structures, like the buff T we shown before in Wim. Our annotation miner is used to help the developers find such data structures. So we also use Wim as an example here. Uh, we are using the differential analysis. Uh, first of all, we generate one test case, test case A. We perform very traditional and you know, very normal operations, open, edit, and save the file. And uh, in the runtime, we will monitor all the different types of data structures. We will, num we will log uh, the number of instances for this uh, type. And for type test B, we actually basically duplicate the task twice. We do the task in A twice, but in two different buffers. So the only variable here will be just uh, the number of buffers. And I run at runtime, we also collect uh, such the, the number of instances for individual data structures. And then we compare the two results and merge them into one. As you can see, the only difference here is the number of buffers. We basically double the number. And uh, many data structures will only, will only have one instance. It's not related with the task. If the data structure is related to the task, the perspective you are using, it actually the number in test case B will be the double of the number in test case A. So that could, you, you're adding two files. Obviously, you will have two opens. Right, so this is uh, intuition. For for like example, like logging, you only have one log buffer in your application. Obviously, no matter how many how many files you are editing, it's it's gonna be only one. 
and we remove some of them and choose some candidates. In practice, we found that even though we remove some of them, we still have many. This is because the, this is actually because the, like the above T case, it has many fields. Like post T is representing the current editing place. Like line, it has two fields, line and column number. I mean, if you have two above T, you're definitely gonna have two post Ts because it's one field. So we perform another analysis. Basically, we just try to identify the top level data structure and report it to the user. By doing this, the post T, those will be removed. Only the above T will be reported. And uh, now I'm gonna talk about the thread model in applications. This is, uh, I'm using Firefox here because the WIM is just a single process, it's uh, too easy. Firefox, uh, first uh, let's review the uh, page loading process. First uh, DNS, right, when you type the URL, it will first uh, query the DNS. It will actually send one query to the DNS thread. The DNS thread will perform the querying and return the results. If you are using different tabs, the different tabs will all post uh, events to the DNS thread. And when they return, it will start to load. Uh, at first, it will create sockets and for the communication, and then uh, send HTTP requests to the servers. The socket thread here is actually for creating and uh, communicate with the remote servers. The main thread is uh, usually just for rendering. This is uh, for performance. I mean, we all, we all use Firefox. Basically, we open like 10 tabs at the same time. I mean, many tabs uh, are active. You can't just uh, depend on only one thread to do this. The response time will be too long. It's uh, basically unusable. So, but if you review the DNS thread and the socket thread here, uh, we will find some problem. It actually it just receives events and then processes events and then return. It actually doesn't know the global context. Like in the DNS thread, it receives the individual events, but frankly speaking, it doesn't really know which tab is uh, is requesting this uh, DNS. And uh, we call those threads worker threads. Those worker threads they only work on one tab or actually a very limited number of types, and those types usually are very similar. And those tasks, are we call them subtasks. They are not like uh, top-level tasks. Top-level tasks will be like uh, tabs or pages, but the, those, uh, those uh, top-level tasks will be divided into individual subtasks and dispatched to individual threads, and the main thread will gather the information and then render the page. They don't really know the global context. So when we attribute the events happen in the worker thread, we actually don't know how to attribute them to the global task. We, we actually don't know the global context. To solve this problem, we introduce the delegator annotation. Delegator annotation, basically we need to instrument the data structure for the subtasks to actually inherit the task identifier from the top level data structure. 
So this is an example. Uh, the left-hand side actually shows the NS Connect events. In Firefox, it's a connection event. So HTTP, FTP. And uh, whenever the main thread wants to connect to something, it will send the, it will post the NS Connect events to the socket thread. Previously, we know the socket thread doesn't know the global context. But uh, when the NS Connect events is, uh, I, I mean, whenever we have a new instance of the delegator class, we instrument uh, another line it's, uh, to inherit the current ID, inherit the current global context. And when this event is, uh, dis uh, is eventually dispatched uh, to the worker thread, the worker thread actually, by nature, it will know the global context. And all the events happening in the worker thread can be correctly attributed to the global identifier. By doing so, all the events, I mean, even for multi-threaded programs, all the events can be uh, correctly attributed to the global context and uh, those will form one unit. And uh, in the rest, I will show some evaluations. First is the annotation efforts. Uh, surprisingly, the annotation efforts is kind of pretty small. Uh, the first column is the application. The second column is the, the program size measured by line or code. Uh, and uh, those four columns show the annotations for different types. ID is the identifier, IND is the indicator, channel variable, and the delegators. The last one shows the instrumented code, instrumented places. So our, our LLVM path will automatically perform the anal analysis and perform the instrumentation. This table is just to show the annotation efforts is pretty small. It's, uh, but the instrumentation, as you can see, is usually a few hundred to a few thousand. So basically, you cannot really do it manually. And Firefox uh, has a maximum number of uh, annotation of, and also the instrumentation. This is uh, because of uh, complexity. As you can see, the line of code of Firefox is uh, very large. It's a very big and complex uh, program. So this table shows the uh, space overhead. By space overhead, uh, I, I should recall some. Uh, so we perform the instrumentation to tell the identifier to the provenance system. Like Linux uh, audio system, we actually use the queue system call. Those are actually additional system events. Those will help the analysis, but it will also consume some space because it generates additional system events. And uh, we don't really want uh, too many additional system events. Uh, this uh, evaluation just, uh, is used just to show the number of uh, additional system events caused by the instrumentation. The first column is the uh, number of the application. The second one is a perspective we use for MPI. And the next two columns show the comparison with BIP. We use two different uh, provenance systems. One is a Lynx uh, audit system. The other one is HiFi. 
the another very popular problem system just published in XSEC 2013. And uh, the last two columns shows uh, the numbers for MPI on two different uh, problem systems. Uh, as you can see for Firefox, uh, the space overhead uh, cost by BIP is uh, very high. And uh, comparing with BIP, MPI perform is better. This is because uh, the low-level events in Firefox, many of them can be actually removed. So we actually can remove those unnecessary instrumentations and make the instrumentation lightweight. But for other programs uh, like uh, Bash, uh, in, in, in Bash, basically, one event handling loop will just be one user command. I mean, it's already very high level. So whenever you, so the MPI partition and the BIP partition will be very similar because BIP doesn't really generate uh, many redundant uh, events. This is the evaluation for the space overhead by using different perspectives, basically annotating different uh, data structures. The, for Firefox, uh, we have a window and a tab and uh, element. Window basically means the top level big window using the system uh, headers and the stuff. And the elements actually individual DOM elements, including iframes or the uh, place holders and also the DIVs and the images, the links, everything. So very heavy. And the, for Apache, we use the connection and the request. For uh, since HTTP 1.1, uh, a connection can be long living and uh, have many, many requests. So those are the two perspectives used in Apache. As you can see, the more fine-grained, basically, the overhead will be very high. Like the DOM is basically for, it's more than 40%. And uh, this is the evaluation for the runtime caused by, caused by instrumentation. In general, uh, it's, a, it's a small, less than 1% which means it's good. And uh, the last one will be just showing a case study. You know, just a very simplified example as before. We use Firefox to download a few files and download some torrents use the transmission program. This is a traditional program. This is a traditional solution. The two, handle, two processes causes a lot of uh, bogger dependencies. Uh, this is a beep. It's actually pretty uh, it's actually pretty, it's correct. All the dependencies are correct. It's just uh, the number of internal events uh, in Firefox causes uh, this problem, makes it uh, looks even worse than traditional. Uh, this is MPI. MPI using tab perspective. So we first use Bing to open, to search and open a few tabs and uh, download the files and use a transparent program uh, it's much more clear because we removed all the redundant events in the in in beep, and uh, this one is another perspective uh, using window using basically the websites you visit. Actually, we can merge different merge all the tabs visiting the same websites into one node, makes the source of the downloaded files even clearer. 
So this is just to show the power of using different perspectives. There are many related works. If you are interested, you can read some of them. And uh, of course, we have uh, limitations. First of all, we need a source code. It's uh, based on LLVM. We have to. Uh, and I think it's uh, necessary because the user have to provide the perspective to us. The second one is annotation. It's not fully automated. We have the miner, but uh, we still it's still we just identify the data structure. Actually, we need to identify the indicator and identify variables. Still, one more step to go. And uh, as a conclusion, we propose the MPI, a an execution partitioning technique based on high-level data structures. It allows the user to actually annotate the high-level data structures, and uh, we will perform the instrumentation to capture the events, including unit context switch and uh, its delegation. We implemented the prototype, and uh, the evaluation shows we actually support uh, uh, better, in better. We actually have better investigation support by providing different perspectives, and the overhead is uh, pretty low, especially comparing with a state-of-the-art beep. And uh, thank you. I'm gonna take questions if you have. Thanks. Are you looking at other browsers besides Firefox? Uh, yes, we uh, actually in the paper we have uh, many many more evaluation results. The slides only show the only a small portion of it. Uh, we we have uh, other browsers like W3M. We didn't really look into Chrome. It's because the execution model of Chrome is well partitioned already. So Chrome actually you can uh, compile the open source version by actually have different uh, compile flags. You can actually have individual one process just for one tab. So it's uh, well partitioned already. Also, it's in a sandbox. I, I mean, I, I like the design, but uh, it, it makes uh, the life easier. But uh, yeah, doesn't apply here. Thank you. All right, so I, uh, I'll ask a few questions. Um, so uh, um, you mentioned that uh, you need the source code and you rely on uh, programmers to kind of annotate the source code. Yes. Um, I was curious uh, if you've uh, done any investigation in, into how accurate uh, programmer investigations or programmer annotations are, you know, what happens when the programmer makes a mistake, do you start to miss uh, critical events in the log? Okay, thank you for the question. So, it's a, the MPI is a heavily depends on the annotations. We develop the annotation miner, try to, you know, make the, try to make the errors as less as possible, but it still is uh, unavoidable. I, I have to say this, but, uh, uh, what I want to point, uh, I point out is actually the log is still complete, but it will only affect uh, the analysis. So 
maybe one, one event is attributed to another different unit, still the event is in the log. If you want, you can still generate the, generate the color graph using the traditional approach, and the graph will be still complete. So we don't really lose anything. It's just the accuracy of the analyzed results. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? All right. Let's thank uh, Xi Cheng again. Okay. Thank you.